Our second reading for today comes from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns. The nations are in an uproar. The kingdoms totter. He utters utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord. See what desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Here ends our second reading. Please pray with me. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning, churches all over the United States, mainline churches that are following the lectionary, are celebrating Christ the King Sunday, the reign of Christ Sunday. Uh, But those of us in the congregational tradition, and even some others, uh, take this opportunity on the Sunday before Thanksgiving to celebrate Thanksgiving Sunday. In the congregational church I grew up in, this was definitely like a holy day of obligation. Uh, (laughs) Even when my family had stopped attending church as often when I was a teenager, we always made sure we came back to church for Thanksgiving Sunday. It was only later on that I found out that this wasn't a big deal in every Christian church around the country. (laughs) But again, it's more than just uh, getting ourselves ready for the holiday coming up or uh, getting dressed up in funny-looking costumes, although as much fun as that is. Um, it's really about, gives us a, it gives us a chance as Congregationalists to uh, consider our history just a bit, to think more deeply about the tradition out of which we come, and trying to, and trying to think about what that might mean for us today. Now, next year, of course, is a big anniversary year for the Pilgrims. It's the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrims landing in Plymouth. And next year, we will hear a lot about the Pilgrims, and I look forward to that. But it's important to remember that the Pilgrims were not actually that significant in the 17th and 18th centuries. The colony of Plymouth was a pretty small and relatively insignificant colony. The colony to the north, Massachusetts Bay, and the colonies in Connecticut were far more significant, both in terms of population uh, and in terms of intellectual influence, economic influence. It's it's no surprise that when uh, Massachusetts got a new charter in 1691, the colony of Plymouth uh, was dissolved and subsumed into the larger colony of Massachusetts Bay. The Pilgrims only took on real significance in the 19th century as America was trying to figure out its foundational myths about what it meant to be American. And from the 19th century onwards, the Pilgrims became a big deal. But it's important to remember that actually in the 17th and 18th century, and in terms of the development of New England and the congregational tradition, the Pilgrims in the early, the Pilgrims in the early years were just not that important. But the people who were important were the Puritans. And since we'll talk a lot about the Pilgrims next year, 
I want to talk a bit about the Puritans today. Now, the Puritans probably should go out and hire a good PR firm. (laughs) Because the word puritanical doesn't exactly elicit uh, a lot of positive thoughts in most people's heads. And this is no new thing. Uh, There's a book that I was reading this past week that's been sitting on my shelf for a while, and it's got a wonderful title, so I'm like, okay, I have to look this through. Uh, It's a book written by Brooks Adams in the 1880s. Uh, He's the brother of Henry Adams. Uh, uh, Brooks Adams wrote this book entitled The Emancipation of Massachusetts. And he hated the Puritans so much, he literally, the entire book was about how Massachusetts got emancipated from their awful ways, that the Puritans were nothing but uh, an intolerant, conservative, theocratic regime, and it was good that they went the way of the dodo bird, so to speak. And this book... Uh, The Emancipation of Massachusetts was then republished in 1919, and by the early 20th century, uh, it was pretty well acknowledged that, oh well, it's a good thing we left that Puritan heritage behind. Uh, There's really nothing of value that we need to consider there. Um, Puritans, it evokes uh, this sense of blue laws, of not having fun, of people going around and being the fun police. No, you're smiling too much. Stop smiling. We're good Puritans. But it was in the early 20th century, actually, in the 1930s, that a series of scholars based out of Harvard University began to reconsider uh, our Puritan legacy. There might actually be something there of value. And it launched, actually, an entire, for the next three decades, there was this flowering of Puritan research. One of the founders of this movement was a guy named Perry Miller. And Miller's a fascinating character. He's a guy who dropped out of college his freshman year at UChicago, um, because he looked around and he said, no one's really asking big questions here. This, is, this, is, this isn't particularly relevant. So Miller drops out of UChicago and then um, decides to go explore what the world's about. And a couple of years later, finds himself uh, on a riverboat in the Congo in the mid-1920s. Not joking. And it's, it, was on this, it was on this riverboat in the Congo that uh, Miller decided that he, he had this epiphany of what his life's mission will be, figure out what it means to be American. What is the essence of Americanness, and how can he discover it? So he went back from the Congo to UChicago, finished his undergraduate degree, and focused on 19th century American literature, because Miller assumed if you want to figure out what it means to be America, uh, American, look at Herman Melville or Nathaniel Hawthorne or Walt Whitman and Ralph Waldo Emerson, study these people, and you'll really get a sense of defining and honing what it means to be American. But what Miller found out as he did his undergraduate work at UChicago and his graduate work at Harvard was that the more he studied these folks, the more he realized that their intellectual currents go back significantly farther than what he thought. And in fact, uh, what it meant to be an American was actually thoroughly rooted in his mind in the New England mind of the Puritans. And he spent his life's work for the next 30 years uh, writing about the intellectual history of the Puritans. And both he and Samuel Elliott Morrison taught a wave of graduate students uh, that studied this even more extensively. Miller's most famous article uh, is entitled Aaron to the Wilderness. And it looks at the question of the Puritans and their initial venture to the New World. Why did they come? What were they all about? Now, this is where it's important to look at some English history. England, again, in the 16th century, under Queen Elizabeth, uh, had these raging debates about what the Church of England should be like. Should it be more like a Roman Catholic church? 
Or should it be more like the Protestant reformers? Those on the reforming side wanted to get rid of the bishops and archbishops, wanted to get rid of clerical vestments, wanted to get rid of the prayer book um, and various icons and things in their worship spaces. And by the end of the 16th century, there was a bit of a truce between between these groups. And that truce extended uh, until the mid-1620s when Charles I became king of England. Charles was someone who was an ardent uh, Anglo-Catholic of his day. And he appointed as Bishop of London and later Archbishop of Canterbury a guy named William Laud. So if any of you read your congregational history, you're familiar with William Laud. Um, And William Laud and Charles immediately began persecuting Puritans, those people who wanted the church to be more reformed, because there had been a lot of latitude that had been left uh, to these Puritans. And it was in this context of religious persecution in the 1620s, or increasing persecution in the 1620s and 1630s, that you had a group of very influential Puritans uh, who concocted an idea. And the idea was, let's go form a colony in the New World, in New England, and let's create a society on perfect biblical principles. Let's create, imagine if you could start from scratch, a society guided entirely by the Bible. Imagine what that would be like. And so this idea really fired up this group of settlers. And when they came over to Massachusetts Bay, uh, they, they, they brought their charter with them. And it was, I mean, again, all these colonies were set up as companies. The Puritans brought their charter with them so they could be self-governing. And they set up a theocracy in Massachusetts Bay. And it was so inspiring that you had an incredibly high percentage of these early settlers uh, who had degrees from Oxford and Cambridge. It was an extremely well-educated group a fairly wealthy and well-off group. Um, and that's, again, it's not surprising that within six years of settling in Massachusetts, uh, they started Harvard College. They were very interested in the life of the mind and in particular interested in the experiment that they were doing in the wilderness. They believed, wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly believed, that they could do this right. If they could do it right in Massachusetts, that the rest of the world would see this and see the error of their ways <laughs> and become good congregationalists like they should be. Like we all know they should be. They just don't know it yet. And so again, in early Massachusetts Bay, in order to vote, you had to be going to heaven. So they had this uh, belief in the 17th century. Puritans had this belief that uh, God would regenerate your soul if you're one of the elect. And you had to give a personal narrative of your conversion before the entire congregation. And the deacons would then approve that. And if you got to be a communing member of the church, uh, then you got the right to vote and then the right to hold public office. But only those who are communing members of the church could vote and hold public office. And even though people were all required by law to sit in church for six to seven hours on a Sunday, uh, only about a third of the group who came to church were actually members. So again, we're working on hour one, so about six more to go. I'm just getting warmed up. <laughs> they did get a break in between, in between for lunch, though, so it's always nice. But anyway, the, so the, here, the Puritans had, the, had this incredible experiment. And the experiment in the, in the 1630s, as, as the sort of tensions in England became more and more severe in the 1630s and eventually led to a civil war in the 1640s, up to 20,000 people emigrated from England to New England to take part in this experiment, including some of the leading intellectual lights of their day. And this is, the, this is what Perry Miller is writing about. He's like, when these settlers went over, they weren't about intolerance and they weren't about you know, persecuting others. They weren't about being prissy or that the other thing. They went on this great errand to try and change the world. And they did believe indeed that the eyes of the world were upon them. Now, it's interesting what to do with this history. 
um, and how we today wrestle with it. One of the things that brought me down to Houston, Texas, is that I believe that uh, First Congregational Church has a mission and a purpose that extends beyond just the walls of our fellowship here. That it's more than just supporting one another and praising God together. That we actually have some sort of purpose as a congregation. That's why I came here. Houston, Texas, of course, has some of the largest churches in the United States. It's also, the churches here are predominantly fairly conservative. And while there are a lot, many, many, many great and wonderful uh, Christians who attend these churches, uh, the theology of these churches, and these churches at their worst, I think can be quite dangerous for society and for individuals. At their worst, these conservative churches, again, fan the flames of homophobia, uh, with in some cases disastrous consequences. Uh, They tend to denigrate women and the role of women uh, in relation to men. Uh, At their worst, these churches uh, question the merits of science um, and uh, increasingly fan Islamophobia in the United States. Um, These are very real threats to our nation and our community. And they're threats that grow out of, in my mind, bad theology. Not enough of an appreciation of the history of the Christian tradition. We here at First Congregational Church are a church that's not bound by uh, past creeds or confessions. Uh, We're a church that believes in engaging the mind as well as the heart in our work of faith. And I think particularly here in Houston, Texas, which is such a Christian place and where Christianity has so much influence, that a church that stands for what we stand for actually can have a major influence in the conversation here. I firmly believe there are thousands of people in our community who are looking for a type of Christianity like we offer. They would like to know that there is such a thing as a progressive Christian viewpoint that does embrace science, but also embraces a life of God and want to earnestly be followers of Jesus. And so that's part of our mission. Another, another thing, though, another side of it is uh, we're in an era of increasing secularization. This past Thursday, I, had, I, was, uh, I was at the monthly luncheon gathering for the Houston Association Clergy in the UCC in our denomination. And this particular gathering was not very well attended, but a lot of the older clergy were there. And as often happens in a gathering of older clergy, uh, the discussion quickly devolved into uh, how great times were in the past and how, and and the evils of secularization and these ministers talking about, oh, when, when I started out, you know, this, is, you know, this, this was the assumption, and people just came to church, and it was so wonderful, and, and now that's not the case anymore. And I, I, we, we were actually hosting this lunch here, and so I'm keep, I kept my mouth shut. Um, uh, but in, in, inside my head, I was thinking, I actually embrace this movement towards secularization because it gives us a chance to be clear about what our message is. I don't want people to come to church just because uh, it's a cultural expectation. I want people to come to church because they find some sort of spiritual renewal here. And the reality is, is that, I, that I think for most, not all, but for most of the secular world, the, the, the answers to the big questions of life are, in my mind, pretty vacuous. I mean, there is this culture of rabid individualism in our, in our society that's not healthy for us. There is, a, as we see all the time, a worship of possessions and materialism that's not healthy for us and does not lead to a path of happiness and fulfillment. You know, there, why do we see increasing divisions in society? Because people, for lack of worshiping something like God, end up worshiping, end up wor- worshiping a political party or a particular ideology or a sports team 
or you know, the newest brand of car, whatever it might be, you know, or how many likes you get on Instagram. I think there's a, I think there's a desperate need in our, in our society for people who are searching for, people who are searching for meaning in, in, in life, a community of people that care for one another, that care about justice, that care about the world, and are willing to do it together. So I think FCC, a community like FCC, has a real opportunity to do more than just be a good Christian church for ourselves, but really be a beacon of hope and light for people in our community. Now, Perry Miller's article on the founding of the Puritans doesn't just talk about their initial entry into the wilderness. It talks about a shift that happened uh, with the early Puritans. And that shift came in the 1640s. Starting in the 1640s, in England, of course, there was a civil war going on. And the Roundheads, the Puritan faction, won the English Civil War. And then in 1649, Charles I got his head lopped off, um, rather unfortunately. As the English Civil War ended, though, what happened was people in England stopped caring about Massachusetts. (laughs) People in Massachusetts, of course, thought that what they were doing was this great experiment. Well, from the 1640s onwards, no one was paying attention anymore. And as a result, according to Miller, this actually led to an increasingly uh, inward-focused perspective of the New England Puritans that did lead to increasing uh, intolerance, that the pieces that were being written in the Puritan era in the 1630s were all about grand theological treaties. By the time you get to the 1670s, you have these series of Jeremiads talking about how everyone's such a sinner and, all, and we're in a decline and all these bad things that are going on and people wringing their, wringing their hands. It's not surprising that you have, um, say, for instance, the Salem witch trials coming in the early 1690s. It was a very different world by the end of the 17th century than it was in that first generation in the beginning of the 17th century. And so some of the worst traits of Puritanism that come out came out, according to Miller, as a result of the fact that they lost. They lost that essence of what their errand was all about. And so I think that's an important lesson for us here at First Congregational. Not only to remember what our errand here is in the city of Houston and what we can accomplish in the city of Houston, but also to make sure we keep our eyes set on that because if we don't, then we can, be, uh, we can fall into those types of internal self-recriminations, focusing on things that don't matter all that much. Uh, or, you know, one of, the, one of the great risks as well is, you know, running into a grounds of self-righteousness. It's one thing to say that, you, that, that we think we've got a great thing to share, which I think we do. It's another thing to say that we think we're the only ones who are right, uh, or that we don't have room to grow and continue to change and evolve our beliefs. So the Puritans might be different than us. They might wear slightly different clothes um, than we did. But I do think they have a lesson for us and a lesson for us here at FCC in spite of all the many years that have passed. As the Puritans came into Boston Harbor in 1630, John Winthrop, the leader of their group, uh, gave a famous sermon on his flagship, the Arabella. Uh, The sermon's entitled Model of Christian Charity. And it's a beautiful sermon to read because Winthrop gets up and what he says to these people is, says to these people that we're starting this colony in the middle of the wilderness, he says, he says to them, the most important thing for us to do is to make sure that we love one another. Because it's by showing our love that other people will see what we're doing and see how great a community we can be. And that people are looking at us. We are a city on a hill, but we will be defined by our love. And he ends with that great line in the end of Deuteronomy, 
saying that, you know, the Lord has put before us both blessings and curses, life and death. Choose life. And I think those words are just as true for us today as they were for the original Puritans back in 1630. 